0: This is Entheogen, talk about tools for generating the divine within. Find the notes and links for this and other episodes at entheogenshow.com. Sign up to receive an email when we release a new episode. Follow us at Entheogen Show on Twitter and like Entheogen Show on Facebook. Today is June 6th, 2016, and we are talking with Dr. Julie Holland, psychopharmacologist, psychiatrist, and best selling author of several books. Julie, welcome to Entheogen.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Yeah, this is uh, this is gr- a great occasion. We've been uh, waiting quite a long time for this, and uh, <laughs> we've had our scheduling difficulties as well. But uh, Julia, I guess before there's about ten million things we'd love to talk to you about, and I know that that's not possible. But uh, I guess before, uh, from from just uh, reading things you've written and, and watching interviews and whatnot, I I I guess the question always that I want to ask you first is. How? What is your story? How did this happen? How did you get started on this uh, this sort of long and beautiful path?
1: Well, I'm afraid it's probably a story people are tired of hearing because my story doesn't change. Um, I, I from the time I was in high school, I was very interested in drugs and how drugs affected behavior. I was very interested in the brain. I was pretty sure I wanted to be a doctor. I thought maybe I wanted to be like a neurosurgeon or, you know, or just a neurologist. I was really fascinated by the brain. But when I learned that where the brain and drugs combine is psychiatry, then I was pretty sure I wanted to be a psychiatrist. So even when I was in high school, I was like reading psychology today and taking psychology courses and doing all my little, uh, you know, papers that I could on, on things like LSD or schizophrenia. I mean, I was just really interested from a very early age in this kind of stuff. And growing up in this, I grew up, I was born in 65. So I grew up in the 70s and I was surrounded by um, drugs and LSD or PCP or cannabis. And that, you know, it was, I mean, especially PCP was very interesting to me because it made people really psychotic and look like schizophrenics and, or like LSD, how could this tiny little microgram dose turn somebody's world inside out and change their perspective so much? So I chose my undergrad based on, you know, who had the most information to impart to me about, about the brain and behavior. So I went to Penn because they had a major called the biological basis of behavior. And while I was a pre-med at Penn, Um, I spent one summer there, uh, taking extra courses and I was, I was living on, on campus in a frat house, which was called the castle, which looked just like a castle. So I was living in the castle and I started that summer, uh, reading about, um, like magazine articles about, about ecstasy, which back then they were calling Adam. Um, and that was the summer that MDMA became emergently scheduled and and became illegal. Um, and, But I was fascinated. I mean, first of all, there was a new drug. So I was already like, whoa, new drug. This is great. Because up until then, there hadn't been any new drugs. So, I mean, now there's like a new drug every time you turn around. It was like an alphabet soup and you can't keep them track. But, you know, back then it was a big deal. So not only was there a new drug in town, but it was a drug that was being used by psychiatrists, by psychotherapists, with their patients to help the therapy, you know, go faster, go deeper. So I was very intrigued. And um, I had a pirate phone. You know, This was before email, before cell phones. Um, you had to dial like a 10 digit number, and then an, an, another 10 digit number if you wanted to make long distance calls, but I had one of these pirate numbers. So all summer long, I was able to make long distance phone calls for free. So I called Rick Doblin, I called Lester Grinspoon, (laughs) I called George Greer. I was just like anybody who was mentioned in any of these articles, I started calling them, talking them, having a relationship with them, Uh, especially Rick Doblin. We spent a lot of time on the phone that summer. He actually came, came to the castle and visited me that summer. So we've been friends since 85, Rick and I. Um, And Rick and I actually took MDMA together. Um, on the last day that it was legal, like June 30th, 1985, <laughs> was our little incredible. claim to fame. Amazing. So um, and whether I wanted to out myself or not, I didn't have a choice because anytime Rick would introduce me to somebody, that's what he would say. So I was like, all right, <laughs> fine. I guess it's not going to be a secret. But I was particularly interested the first couple times I took MDMA that summer, um, very interested in how quiet it made my brain, how quiet it made my thoughts. And the first thing that I thought of was like, this would be great for people with schizophrenia because it would stop their voices. And also this sort of heart opening sensation and feeling trusting and, and open and allowing myself to be vulnerable, which I always have trouble with. I had this idea that people with schizophrenia would be less um, paranoid. And that they could be more open to people helping them. So I've always been very interested in schizophrenia and um, still like I just I um, those are those are the patients that I really want to help and I really uh, enjoy connecting with. So I it it just made me very sure like, yes, I want to be a psychiatrist. Yes, I want to work with these medicines and I want to go to medical school and I want to do MDMA research. So it was it was nice to have that goal and be so clear about what I want to do because med school's such a pain in the ass there's so <laughs> much you have to learn um but I was like it's okay I can learn this because I'm not really going to need this cuz I'm going to be a psychiatrist <laughs> you know I could take things a little bit with a grain of salt like I learned it all did great on the test, but then I would be like, I don't really have to remember all this. I don't have to. I can always look it up again. So it made it made med school very doable for me because it's hard. It's just a lot. You know, there were times in med school where I really felt like my my brain was leaking out my ears because you're learning so much new information. You just like sitting and reading and learning, going to classes, and um, it's. I would wake up in the middle of the night and my brain would be processing all this new language and I felt like I was being brainwashed. I would I'd be in the library studying and I would see I would see a sign that said periodicals, but I would look at it and think it said pericardials. And I was like, you know, like I can't even think like a normal person. You know, I would say start to see people as patients and chief complaints and treatments and prognoses. And it really is a bit of a of like an indoctrination into a cult. Um, and I have to say, socially, it's not the greatest place to spend four years. Um, but I did I did make some very good friends. And um, I don't know. So, you know, that's I, I was involved with MAPS from before there was a MAPS. And I've been committed to MDMA research since the very beginning. Um, and now the other thing that I do is I'm the medical monitor for a, a cannabis PTSD study that is finally, finally getting underway. I, that's, I just uh, clicked off of a of a protocol meeting to do this interview, but we've, we've been stalled out for about six years doing this cannabis PTSD study because of our lovely government and NIDA and DEA, but everything is finally moving forward. Um, and you know, the MDMA research, we've got really strong data. I'm the medical monitor for MDMA PTSD research and now the medical monitor for cannabis PTSD research. So I'm happy that I'm sort of doing what I set out to do. Um, And then the other thing, I I just have a private practice in psychiatry in New York City um, where it's very easy to have a sort of lucrative psychiatric practice because everybody in the city is miserable. (laughs) (laughs) There's just no end to the people who come to me and they're stressed and depressed and anxious and they're all surprised to find out they have low vitamin D levels. And it's like, when's the last time you were like outside in the sun for more than 10 minutes, you know?
2: Yeah. I, I'm a child of that, uh, that specific psychological condition. And I feel that like I've spent my entire life getting as far away from it as possible. You
1: know, yeah. I, you know, I love, I love New York city. Um, and I, I spent about 12 years living there and then we bought a house in the country. And for eight years I went back and forth between the country and the city. And it really gave me tremendous perspective on how we live in the city and how you're in such a bubble and you don't realize like nobody lives like this except for us. Um, but it is, it is a good place to practice psychiatry because uh, the way that we live in the city is so unhealthy and so unnatural that a lot of people really end up needing pharmacological help. Um, and so the most, my most recent project, I, I wrote a book for women because women are so over-medicated and over-pathologized, over-diagnosed. So I, I wrote a book for women called Moody Bitches. Um, And the the subtitle of Moody Bitches is the truth about the drugs you're taking, the sleep you're missing, the sex you're not having, and what's really making you crazy. And in Moody Bitches, I I explain sort of how antidepressants work and how anti-anxiety meds work and how um, you could also go outside and be in nature and get cardio or fall in love or eat more healthy food or this and that and the other thing. Or you can use cannabis. I mean, I make a pretty good case for cannabis in Moody Bitches um, as part of sort of an anti inflammatory regimen. You know, you have an anti inflammatory diet and there are anti inflammatory activities like meditation or stress reduction or cardio um, and cannabis is a really potent anti-inflammatory medicine, and I really think that there is a place um, for cannabis in psychiatry.
0: I thought something uh, interesting that you said, Julie, when I uh, met you at uh, an event in New York City, uh, was that um, the, the book wasn't doing quite as well as you had hoped for, the publisher had hoped for, because it turns out that women don't mind being called being called bitches, but they don't want to be called moody, in fact. <laughs>
1: right, right. I think, you know, we are so worried about being emotional or being vulnerable. Um, you know, I think, look, for for thousands of years, I think that the feminine has sort of been beaten out of men, you know, and and young boys are taught, like, you know, don't cry, don't be a little pussy and man up. And like, boys are given the message all the time that they shouldn't be emotional, they shouldn't be emotionally expressive. And it's sort of like this suppression of yin energy. But it turns out now that women are getting that message too, that women are being taught that it's not okay to cry, that it's not okay to be emotional or be emotionally expressive. Now we're suppressing our yin energy. And the the result is that there's a tremendous imbalance in our culture and around the world of this sort of masculine penetrating yang energy. Now, obviously every man and woman has a combination of yin and yang. It's not as simple as girls are this way and boys are this way, but. Um, you know to me you can see this sort of cancer of yang which is an expression that my husband jeremy uses that i think is really unfortunately he- it's very fitting Jer- jeremy wolf my husband mm-hmm. um already.com. So he he sort of uh, came up with this phrase the cancer of yang just to to talk about this imbalance of this male penetrative energy and you can see it in you know Donald war <laughs> war terrorism trump corporate corporate malignancy, you know corporate greed, rape, uh, guns, you know it's this sort of penetrating yang masculine energy. It's shoot first, ask questions later. And the thing that we don't prize in our culture is being receptive is being vulnerable being the being the the vessel the receiver instead of the penetrator uh, and we need to sort of rebalance that energy so i mean that's really a, a big message of moody bitches is that it's natural for a woman to be receptive and reflective and to wait before acting Um, and to be emotional. And and it's natural to be cyclical and fluid and dynamic. Women are not meant to be static. We're not meant to have the same uh, mood and perspective every day. And that's a gift. And I think that all these women who are on the pill, which is flatlining their hormones, or they're on antidepressants, which is flatlining their emotional responsiveness, it's very unnatural. Um, It may be great for the workplace. But it's not great for the woman and it's really not great for society. It creates a new normal where being medicated and nonplussed and whatever, it's all good, is the new norm. Um, And that, you know, the, the thing I say in Moody Bitches is like it's just like with plastic surgery where, you know, back in the 80s, a lot of women were getting breast implants and it made the rest of us feel flat chested. And what's happening now is that so many women are on antidepressants with their flattened moods that it's making the emotionally expressive women feel like there's something wrong with them. And that's a really dangerous precedent. It's not good. It's not good for the woman and it's not good for our society.
2: Sure. And, and Julie, I wanted to say that um, reading Moody, you know, you read the title for Moody Bitches and you might think this is, uh, you know, you've obviously written the book uh, talking about women and it might sound specifically for women, but I think it's a fantastic read as a, as a man. I think there's a lot yeah. to, to learn. There's a lot that applies to men as well. And, Definitely. Uh, and yeah.
1: So and, Like the, you know, secret weapons for men. It's like knowledge (laughs) is power. There's a lot of stuff in there that guys don't know and they should know. I mean, if nothing else, you should read like the sex chapter, you know, give you a few few helpful hints there. But just to understand better a woman's cycle, you know, like Jeremy is like, oh, yeah, you're day 17. I know what to expect. You know, it's like he knows where I am in my cycle and he has a good idea of sort of what to expect and when to take things with a grain of salt or when I'll be more receptive to him. And when I'm completely not interested in him at all, it's good for him to know that and, and accept that.
2: Definitely. I, I I just got a, such a kick out of uh, a lot of, the, I mean, apart from being informed, I, it's also very funny. And uh, and I kept thinking, I wish I had this book in high school sex ed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> this would seriously. have been the best sex ed class. Yeah.
1: Like, you know, somebody, somebody in their late teens, early 20s, guy or girl, you know, you're going to get a lot of information that you can use over a lifetime. I've definitely heard from a number of people who read the book, you know, in their 60s or 70s, like, I wish I had this 40 years ago. So um, I hope, you know, I hope more women and more men read it. I, I mean, the book tanked. It did not sell. And it was pretty terrible to go through that. And I I do think that the title, um, you know, I thought it was funny. You know, the title is meant to be a joke. I mean, obviously, I don't call women bitches. I don't call my patients bitches. You know, it's supposed to be funny. But I, I'm not sure people got the joke. And um, so it, it didn't really sell very well. And you know, that's the way it goes.
2: <laughs> I mean, maybe I, maybe I, like a yep. du- douchey bro dogs would be. Like
1: a <laughs> yeah. I wasn't going, I mean, it was something like, you know, cranky bastards or something <laughs> like that, but you know, douchey bro dogs a little, little too far, even, for, even for me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Just really saying something.
0: And Julie, something else you said uh, at, at the talk you gave, I remembered, um, was, uh, you know, speaking of just the, like, sort of preying on, on, uh, I don't know, like the, the emotionality, like the standard kind of, uh, you know, moodiness, like that we should accept um, of, of women. Um, you made a point that uh, pharmacists are now preying on, like the idea that like women might overeat and they yeah. feel bad about it. Yeah,
1: I'm glad, I'm glad you brought this up, because this is actually a really big deal. There's something very specific going on. So Shire, the makers of Adderall, have a medicine called vivance Now, Adderall is no longer on patent, right? You can get generic Adderall. Oh, and you can get children's chewable generic Adderall. So <laughs> don't worry, it's not just chewable Ritalin now. You can get both. So anyway, yeah, it's crazy. What, what, do, you,
2: what do you do so, if you overeat that?
1: So, uh, exactly. Well, just, you you know, then you can take a bill you will be fine. Take an (laughs) antibiotic if you get crazy. So, so anyway, the maker, the makers of Adderall have another drug called Vyvanse. Now Adderall tablets last like three or four hours and Adderall capsules last like six or eight hours. But then there's Vyvanse, which lasts like 12, maybe even 13 hours ultra long acting amphetamine. So, you know, they've got plenty of young boys and men who think that they have ADHD or they do have ADHD and they're taking stimulants, they're taking Adderall or they're taking Vyvanse. But what they really don't have with the market for the amphetamines is women. So Shire created basically, or sort of, let's say they sort of co-opted or took advantage of of a very rare diagnosis um, called binge eating disorder in women. And what they did was they did a study where they, gave, where they gave people with binge eating disorder, and like really severe binge eating disorder, like these people really did have it. They gave them daily high-dose long-acting amphetamine day after day after day. And finally, when it got to be like 10, 11 weeks, it started to separate out from placebo. So they wrote a paper. And what's interesting is in the journal that this paper came out, which said, hey, you can take daily high-dose long-acting amphetamine and you'll binge less, which is a little bit like duh <laughs> right. in that journal there's a full page ad for using vivance to treat binge eating disorder and the ads the ads that for women Because, you know, in the medical journals, it's full of only one kind of ad, and that is drug ads for the doctors. So for the doctors, it says your patient may have binge eating disorder, but she's going to be too embarrassed to tell you about it. So you have to really push and ask her. But then they target women and these ads for women say, like, if you sometimes eat more than you want to and then you feel bad about it afterwards, you may have binge eating disorder which is pretty much like saying if you're a woman in America you may have this diagnosis and you may need to take our medicine and then they got a patent extension for vivance so vivance isn't going to go generic because now they've got a new indication which is binge eating disorder so it was pretty scammy um they're they're trying to get a bunch of women hooked on speed you know it's i mean i call it like the big pharma speedball right because the big the big drugs in America right now are opiates and amphetamines. And, you know, that's a great combination, as some people will remember uh, from back in the day, for instance, John Belushi. But, you know, there there is this, this sort of uh, tradition of combining um, an opiate and speed or an opiate and cocaine to create something called a speedball. It's very pleasurable. So, you know, the big, big pharma drugs in America right now are opiates and amphetamines, but mostly only men are taking the amphetamine. So they want to hook all the women also. I mean, the other thing that's making me crazy is Abilify, which is an antipsychotic, which is now being used to treat depression. And more and more now doctors are prescribing antipsychotics for people to help them sleep or because they're emotional or because... Um, oh, I had one woman come in who was on an antipsychotic because when she she was trying to quit smoking, she was getting kind of irritable. I was like, if you're not psychotic, you should not be taking an antipsychotic. These medicines have very high risks of irreversible diabetes, irreversible movement disorders. If you are schizophrenic and you need an antipsychotic, then that's fine. You take that. But to start giving half the population because they're moody and antipsychotic is a terrible injustice. And now- Abilify, um, not now, a couple of years ago, Abilify was the biggest moneymaker of a drug in America. Not the biggest psych drug, the biggest medicine, period. So there's a lot of people taking antipsychotics now. And, you know, our, our sort of national diagnosis has morphed from neurotic to psychotic. And one out of four women in America is taking a psychiatric medication right now. And in some demographics and in some locations, it's higher than that.
2: Wow that's that's incredible and uh julia i just i wonder you know as as a doctor how you kind of navigate that complex relationship between uh big big pharma and you know and and an actually useful medication that's used for good diagnosis uh, versus sort of as you said scammy uh, sort of, you know, uh, I'd say dark business practices.
1: Yeah. It's Um, hard, you know, 80% of, of psych medicines in America are prescribed by people who are not psychiatrists. They're prescribed by, um, you know, family practitioners, GPs, nurse practitioners, PAs. I mean, they're not psychiatrists. They're not trained in psychiatry. So my number one piece of advice is if you really think you have a depression or if you think you have bipolar disorder, um, See a psychiatrist. Find a psychiatrist. Do not trust your GP who's going to spend 10 minutes with you and you're going to leave with a prescription for an antidepressant. You really may not need an antidepressant. And the other thing is these meds are not meant to be taken for years and years. They're meant to be taken for months and months, and then you wean off and see if you really still need it. It's kind of like if you break your leg and you have a cast. You don't keep the cast on forever. If you do, your leg is atrophied. You cut the cast off, and you're like, oh, my God, look at my leg. I need a cast. You know, the the medicines can sort of create a situation where you need the medicines, So you need to make sure you really need them before you take them, and then you need to take them for the least amount of time that the psychiatrist thinks is appropriate, and then taper off very slowly so that you can taper off, because they're hard to get off of. Antidepressants are really hard to get off of, and people have withdrawal symptoms, and that convinces them, oh, I have a chemical imbalance, I need this medicine. There's actually very little evidence that chemical imbalance is even a real thing.
0: The first time I remember um, realizing that the pharmaceutical industry uh, preys on people, you know, in their advertising was, I think, uh, commercial for, I guess it was restless leg syndrome. I mean, right. first of all, is that is that a thing? Like, is that a real thing?
1: <laughs> Again, it's it's a it's a real thing in a very small amount of people, but you know, you you start like calling it RLS and telling people they may have it and people start to have it. But yeah, that that was a little bit of a scammy medicine. And then there was um, excessive daytime sedation. If you suffer from EDS, you know, you may need this, you know, provigil, new vigil. Look, there's lots of fun drugs to play with. I get that. And there, there are things that can keep you awake. There are things that can put you to sleep. There are things that can cheer you up or calm you down. I get that there is sort of a, a, a wonderland out there of medicines. I don't think people should be uh, doing it without somebody who's really practiced in psychopharm who can help them. I mean, you know, when people come to me, they usually have come to me through a therapist. So they've already been in therapy for a while. And the therapist is saying, you know, I really think you need medicines. So people who come to me often really do need medicines. But even those people, I will start them on medicines. But then once they are on the medicines, we will talk about everything that they can do to put in place to be healthier and feel better so that they can get off the medicines. And I'm just afraid that a lot of people don't get that. They get on the medicines and they stay on the medicines.
0: Should it be, you know, restricted or, or just outright illegal for, for big pharma to advertise to, right. you know, patients, let alone directly to doctors?
1: So... Back in the mid, late 80s, they started advertising. And then in 95, what happened was a bunch of restrictions on advertising were lifted. And that's when the floodgates opened, which is coincidentally right when I started practicing in private practice. So in the last 20 years that they have been advertising, those numbers are going up and up and up. And then 911 was like a great opportunity for them to hook a lot of people on anti anxiety meds and sleeping meds because that's when. After 9-11-2001, there was no longer any stigma. You know, you want to take something, you can take something. Everybody was anxious. Everybody was nervous. You know, it wasn't just the attacks. It was anthrax. It was a lot of things going on that were making people very anxious. Um, And that was a real, I mean, I wrote about in Moody Bitches that this was a real opportunity for Big Pharma, and they seized it. And they started um, having ads that particularly targeted women, Mm -hmm. That would show a woman in a city kind of clutching her purse, you know, with words around her like anxious, worry, insomnia, sleeplessness. And and the tagline was like millions could be helped by Paxil. Um, And they did. They, They hooked millions of people. And Paxil is one of the hardest meds to get off of. It's got a real serious withdrawal syndrome. Um, Effexor is another one, so hard to get off of. And so people that got on these meds, they couldn't get off of them. And you know, Big Pharma, uh, as much good as they do, and I know that there are people who really need their psychiatric medications. I, you know, after nine years working at Bellevue, I certainly understand that there are plenty of people who absolutely need their meds. There are people with schizophrenia, there's people with bipolar disorder, there are people who have recurrent depressions, they can't get by off their meds. That's not who's on these meds. Um it is like a cosmetic psychopharm thing. It's very gray. You know, there's ash gray, there's charcoal gray, where you're going to fall in that line, whether you really need meds or not. There's nothing objective. There's no objective test to see whether somebody needs their meds or not. And the advertising, you know, I, I say this a lot, but I just, I think it's a good example. I don't know if you guys saw the first ad for the iWatch, for the Apple Watch, but they did this very smart thing right in the beginning when they start talking about the Apple Watch and all the cool things it does. They show you twenty different watches, and so all of a sudden you're not saying like, "Do I want a, one of these watches?" I don't know. Do I need a watch? They're like, "Oh, which one? Which one is me? Which one looks like me the most?" Maybe I'm the silver one. Um, it's the same thing with all this big pharma advertising. It goes from "Do you need to take any of this?" to "Which one of these is right for me?" You know, which one should I take? And I had people coming into my office in the late '90s, early 2000s you know, saying things like, well, um, you know, you know, that one with the horse, oh, you know, you know, the butterfly, the, the, the butterfly sleeping pill, is that better than ambient, you know, just like crazy, uh, people, you know, when I started in 95, somebody would come to my office and they would tell me that they were depressed or they were crying or they're having trouble sleeping. And I would say, you know, there are medicines you can take. It's not so terrible. It doesn't make you a bad person. There was a lot of like destigmatizing that I had to do back in the nineties, but now people come to me and it's like, well, can you explain the difference between? Wellbutrin and affects her because you know my my Pilates instructor said that she didn't like Zoloft at all, but that Wellbutrin was great for her. But you know my cousin really thinks that affects her. It's just like it's just completely changed. The conversation has changed. Um, people are inundated with ads telling them that they should be taking something. And big pharma is not about creating cures; they are about creating customers. This is a for-profit industry. I, uh, you know, what can we do? We can stop advertising. We could make medicine. Uh, a right instead of a commodity, you know, we could have national health care, we could have a uh, single party insurance that has power to set prices. You know, right now we've got a completely capitalist system. And don't even get me started on the stupid insurance and in-network and out of network and how splintered it is because it's making me crazy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you should uh, take something for that. I think you yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think
2: that There's, butterfly one. That butterfly, I heard that one's the best.
0: Are you confused it, about all the big pharma advertising coming to you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's uh I
2: have I have to say it's um what you're saying about uh kind of big pharma and the uh sort of the political situation, it's just uh it's I don't know, it's so reminiscent of so many other areas of uh of life right now and uh I having lived uh for a long time now in Spain, I get into this argument quite often with people. And uh, I think that one of the things they don't understand about something like national health care is the fact that, that it's sort of a check against that kind of power right um and and that's not a part of the conversation er- ever like I, I read a lot of um, a lot of news stories about the healthcare care debate, and I never see that point brought up, and I think that's such an important point there's there's a, There's a really important check on power when when the health care system is purchasing in mass and and has sort of a filter for that
1: yeah i mean right now it's completely profit-driven um it is it's like this imbalance of yang you know it's totally corporate greed and capitalism and profit-driven um and it's not you know we're the we we shouldn't have this system i don't know who's going to change it or how it's going to change but everybody has to agree that this system is totally broken and it's ridiculous
0: so switching gears uh, to the more um, i, I don 't know promising uh, <laughs> drugs, I guess I would say um, uh, you know one thing that, as you mentioned that 's coming uh, you know coming to the forefront now finally is some actual r- research into cannabis um, there's lots of you now we have a few states that have legalized it, there are lots of edibles coming to the forefront. I thought that um, one interesting story that, that you had told was about a patient of yours that was looking for uh, and a way of uh, being of using cannabis as a treatment, but, you know, didn't want to get high, didn't want to smoke it, didn't want to vape it, um, and didn't want to eat it. Uh, and there's a kind of a side conversation here about, I guess, uh, 11-hydroxy-THC, which I want to talk about. Right. But what was the novel administration method that you had suggested in this case? Do you know what the case I'm talking about?
1: So, yeah, I mean, so this is this is a woman with pancreatic cancer who's a professor and really needs to keep her wits about her and needs to be very sharp. And, you know, she's trying to take this high dose THC to help to treat her cancer and her chemotherapy, nausea and this kind of thing. But she does not want to be very altered. And if you eat it. Your liver makes 11-hydroxy-THC, which is going to get you even more banged up than THC. It's a little bit more psychedelic. It's a little bit more sort of disorienting. It lasts longer. It's like it's a different drug, basically. So, um, you know, I, I have to say one thing quickly about edibles is that I really want people to start to spread the word that one hour is not enough time to wait, that you really need to wait two hours before you consider redosing because you just do not know what you're in for at one hour at all. Um and edibles can be very strong and they can last a long time and they can be really uncomfortable. So uh, now normally in this situation, if you want to avoid the liver because you don't want to live in hydroxy THC, you the choices are sublingual under your tongue, transdermal through the skin or rectal. Um, all of those uh routes of entry let's say will avoid will avoid they'll get into your bloodstream but they won't go directly to the liver where they're going to get broken down to 11-hydroxy THC but there's another route that people forget that half the population has an option for and that's vaginally her doctor didn't want her doing anything rectally because her doctor was very worried about e coli and infections and poop and bacteria and it's like no rectal's not going to be an option for you because she's Im- immunosuppressed but um vaginal the doctor was totally open to because uh it's not um just bacteria wise it's a much better option it's not it's not typically full of e coli it's not sterile but it's not the bacterial wonderland that the rectum is so um so this patient uh was taking her cannabis vaginally and there really is sort of a rich tradition of women um back in the day taking cannabis vaginally and and creating these sort of tinctures or just like a paste, um, and putting them on a broomstick or a dildo and inserting them vaginally. And this may be where the whole witches on broomstick idea comes from. It's one possibility of where that began. Um, but it is, it is a, a route of entry to consider when you do not want oral ingestion
0: and what form would the you know the the drug actually be in you know were we talking uh like an extraction so these legacy? were
1: these were capsules of oil okay um and she would just open open the capsule and and uh assume an inverted yoga position
0: mm-hmm.
1: for a while cuz otherwise everything kind of falls out um and that worked great for her
0: interesting so to unusual. focus on <laughs> unusual yes to say the least but uh but, you know, I think also these things will become more uh, mainstream as, uh, the, you know, this industry kind of gets off the ground and, and the uh, me- medical use is, is actually studied a little bit more closely. Uh, but, you know, for example, like learning about um, 11-hydroxy-THC was brand new for me. I remember hearing for, for years about how just everybody would say, you know, when you eat it, it's like it's, it's intense. It's like tripping. Right, It's just had about, like tripping. Yeah, it is. It's it's like it really seems more similar to LSD per se um, than than to, can, to smoking cannabis. Not just that it's stronger, but that it's you know substantively different. And I always thought that it was because people just overdose. Like you know, you, you hear stories about people take like a brownie, and it's like you know, there's an eighth of, of an ounce in each brownie or something like that. It just <laughs> seems like a ridiculous uh, quantity. And I always ridiculous. assumed that was it, but so you're saying actually the liver converts the THC into a different substance entirely, and that the, and, and that this other substance, eleven hydroxy THC, is actually a different, uh, has a different you know method of action or different different uh, right effects. Well, look,
1: it's still a CB one agonist, just like just like THC is, but it's more potent. And it lasts a lot longer. I mean, if you if you take a puff off of your pen vape, I mean pen vapes in particular to me seem to have like the very shortest, uh, shortest half life where maybe 15, 20 minutes later, you feel like you haven't had anything. But if you eat something, it takes between an hour and two for it to come on. And then it's going to last hours and hours and hours. So if you're uncomfortable, you're going to be uncomfortable for a while. And if you're incapacitated, you're going to be incapacitated for a while. So um, what's nice about if you can inhale your medicine is that you know within a minute or two minutes whether you need to take more or whether you're okay and you've you've had your dose already. Um, You don't have to wait an hour or two to figure out whether you need more or not. it's so it's easier to titrate your dose or to adjust your dose if it's inhaled as opposed to ingested. Um, also, you know, the my standard line is like, "Who eats a quarter of a cookie? Who eats an eighth of a brownie? Anyone, raise your hand." It's like, why, you know, why are there like hundred milligram, you know, Carova bars or whatever? I mean, they're like there there are edibles now that have way too much THC in them. And even if they're marked, it's very hard, you know, to take a 10th of a chocolate bar or an eighth of a brownie because you only want five or 10 milligrams of THC and that's enough. So I really, (laughs) and like, what if it tastes really good, you know?
0: Right. Um, Exactly. You
1: know, there are like really nice artisanal, you know, salted caramel chocolate bars. And it's like, it's going to be hard for you to take, you know, an eighth of that of that bar when it tastes that good. So I, I really think that the, that the industry needs to be, needs to police itself a little bit, or they're going to end up getting policed in a way that they're not comfortable with where, you know, there has to be some sort of standard, like 10 milligrams is a standard dose. And that's what should be in your cookie or chocolate bar. And, you know, if people want high dose oral, then they really should just be having capsules because nobody should have that much flour or sugar anyway.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. I'm very into the whole anti-inflammatory diet, so I'm I'm pretty down on flour and sugar. Yeah,
2: when when I mentioned uh, the male sort of that moody bitches could also be very well read by a man, that was another part I thought that you tied in nicely in the book is that you make uh, sort of the, the big argument for a, for a healthy diet as part of this whole, a piece of this whole puzzle.
1: Yeah, it's an important piece. I mean, I talk, look, the, you know, when I was, when I was writing Moody Bitches every month, uh, like, uh, you know, like in February, I would be reading, you know, all these books and scientific articles about the thing that I was going to write about in March. And I'd be writing about what I read about in January. So every month I was doing a new chapter, studying for the next chapter, writing the last chapter. But when I started learning about inflammation and the connection between inflammation and psychiatry... I went down this rabbit hole for like three months where I was reading tons of books and tons of articles. I was like, oh my God, this is so important. There's this huge connection between inflammation and depression, inflammation and anxiety, inflammation and insomnia, inflammation and obesity. So if you can adopt anti-inflammatory lifestyles, if you can do an anti-inflammatory diet, which is primarily cutting out flour and sugar, um, but also just, you know, eating whole foods and Um, it's okay to have some fats, you know, I mean, we, we really got brainwashed in the nineties that we had to do like high carb, low fat. And that was terrible for America. We got very Mm. fat because carbs and starches make inflammation worse. So they're not only going to make you fat, but they're going to, you're going to be predisposed to diabetes and all these psychiatric problems and potentially autoimmune issues. So, um, it's funny cause the inflammation chapter of Moody Bitches is the shortest chapter in the book because the publishers were like, Oh no, this is way too wonky, too much science. You know, you gotta like tone down the nerdy thing. Cause I just, I felt like I could have done a whole book on inflammation. It's so important. Um, And that's one of the reasons why I felt totally justified kind of plugging cannabis throughout Moody Bitches is because it is a potent anti-inflammatory medicine. And we know that it helps make people less anxious, less depressed, sleep better. I mean, there's a lot of sort of complaints that my patients have where if I could prescribe cannabis or recommend cannabis or just CBD, I would. I mean, PMS, cramps, you know, perimenopausal symptoms, they're there's a lot of indications for cannabis that people aren't really talking about. I mean, I you know, I know Whoopi Goldberg's got some products now for, for women and cramps. Um, and, you know, there was a little sniggering going on. And I think like uh, Chris Christie made some, you know, comment about it that was not very positive. But the truth is um, that a lot of women are really incapacitated for a day or two every month where they feel terrible and don't want to go out and do anything. And then there is the, the whole issue of PMS, which a lot of women really do, Um, get very irritable and overwhelmed and feel terrible a day or two before their periods. And you really could use cannabinoids to help tremendously with those symptoms. Now, um, the New York medicinal cannabis law, which is a piece of crap, it's like the worst medical marijuana law in the country, pretty much. Um, It's very hard to be a physician in New York State Um, especially to be a psychiatrist in New York state because post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, insomnia, any of these things that I would recommend cannabinoids for I can't in New York state because you don't qualify for the law. And also in New York state, there's no whole smoked flour. There's no flour at all. It's all kind of extracts and oils and capsules. And um, it's a weird law. And I mean, I, I feel like it's an insult to the plant you know, this is an ancient medicinal plant that's been used for thousands of years and is very safe and very effective. And to try to apply the sort of medical model where everything is standardized and homogenized um, into, into capsules and formulated and, there's, and it's only THC or CBD and there's no terpenes and there's no whole flower, there's no entourage effect. It's terrible. It's, it's destined to fail. And I'm assuming that that's what they want.
0: Kevin shared a uh, really appropriate uh, McKenna quote recently about uh, the, speaking of the insult to the plant aspect of uh, it.
2: Yeah, the the, no, the notion of illegal plants is obnoxious and ridiculous in the first place. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. No, I mean, it's right. You know, it, it, it's like, who are you to tell me what I can grow in my garden? And the, the thing about cannabis is that it has the potential to be very subversive because this is a medicine that you can grow yourself. You don't need your doctor. You don't need big pharma. You don't need your insurance company. You can take care of yourself. And it's not just that it can treat you know, chemotherapy-induced nausea or even that it can kill cancer cells. It's actually a, a preventative medicine, a medicine that you can take to help you be healthier now. You don't have to be sick to benefit from taking something that has anti-inflammatory effects. You know, This is a a preventative medicine it's it's to help you maintain your health so that you don't need your doctor and you don't need your oncologist so it is it's revolutionary and um and I do consider cannabis to be a psychedelic actually i mean jeremy jeremy calls it the people psychedelic because it's you know it's so widely available and it's sort of the a toned down version of a psychedelic but it is mind manifesting it does uh, Sort of unhabituate you to your environment and make you see things with a fresh eye and a fresh perspective. Um, and that dishabituation is really therapeutic. And also, it's there, you know, this idea that there's some disconnect between recreation and therapeutic, you know, that this is recreational use and this is therapeutic use. I mean, as a psychiatrist, I think that's bullshit because recreation is therapeutic. And, you know, one of the things that we can do to stay healthy is to de stress. And to calm down, and to have some joy and pleasure and laughter in our lives—that's good for us. That helps keep you healthy. So, you know, this there is this whole chasm between recreation and therapeutic, which is this kind of preventative, homeostatic medicine. That this is something that you can use to keep you healthy pre- to prevent illness.
2: I I often wonder how we get the the whole psychedelic, you know, specifically when it, we're talking about uh, natural psychedelics and, and plants. How we need a think tank, I think, to to come up with a way to to get this into the mind of uh, the, the sort of uh, small government conservative uh, way of thinking, because it seems like, you know, that the, that sort of MO is all about uh, keeping the government out of your life in every way possible. And uh, this seems like such a natural ally, but it just just, you know, for yeah. whatever it is, conservative values or whatnot, it's very difficult to get them to consider it. But I feel like they're just such natural allies.
1: Well, it's definitely an ally for the libertarian sort of Mm. section of conservatives. And I also think that like these, you know, these old white guys are dying out. They're going to age out. It's going to be easier and easier as younger people come into positions of power and they understand that, you know, cannabis isn't such a big boogeyman um, and that. And, you know, if nothing else, it's certainly better for people to have access to cannabis than it is for them to have access to spice and K2. I mean, these synthetic cannabinoids are crazy. They're, you know, they work on the receptor in a different way. They kind of lock onto the receptor and they don't let go, as opposed to to THC, which is like a partial agonist. It kind of hangs out on the receptor, but a lot of things can modify it. You know, when you have these synthetic cannabinoids... These were designed by Hoffman to sit on the receptor and not move, and that's what happens. And people are altered for a long time. And also, um, you know, the the public hospitals in New York City, the the Health and Hospitals Corporation, which is like the the company that owns Bellevue and Metropolitan and all the city hospitals, they're reporting really high levels of er visits because of spice and k2 because of these synthetic cannabinoids Um, that people are getting psychotic and they're staying psychotic they're admitting them they're not just clearing in the er you know when people come in from crack after a day or two maybe three at the outside they're totally fine back to normal you can discharge them people come in from synthetic cannabinoids you have to admit them because they're not going to clear in two or three days they're taking longer and they're staying psychotic and there's more there's more sort of agitation and violence on the wards because of these people who are getting like very markedly altered from synthetic cannabinoids. There's no reason that these that things like spice and k two have to be out and they're only they only exist because of prohibition.
0: Yet another insult to the plant. Yeah. What about um you mentioned CBD briefly what about you know the promise of CBD I've only just started hearing about it really very recently and and what about the legality of it as kind of a like an isolated compound from from the whole plant
1: So there are some states that just that have like CBD only medicinal cannabis laws um but right now officially CBD is a schedule 1 drug and I understand that there are certain companies um who are great who I recommend to my patients <laughs> um like Mary's Medicinals and Bluebird Botanicals and CW Botanicals. I understand that there are some companies that are selling CBD oil um, from hemp and they're calling it a food supplement so that they're not calling it a drug and they say that it's perfectly legal. But the truth is, it's not It's not legal right now. It is still a Schedule I drug. Um, the DEA has said, I love this, what they said a few months ago was, in a few months we will tell you, whether we're going to do anything about rescheduling cannabis or not. They didn't say that they were going to reschedule it or they weren't. They said that they would tell us in a few months whether they are going to or not. So um, I'm not holding my breath for cannabis to be descheduled or rescheduled anytime soon. But it's possible that DEA will throw us a bone and say that they're going to they're gonna reschedule CBD down to Schedule 2 or Schedule 3. Um, I doubt they're just going to... Blanket say, okay, you know, cannabis is legal now. But um, so CBD is. I mean, do you, do you, should we talk about what CBD is? It's kind of complicated. I definitely talk about it in my book, The Pot Book, mm-hmm. a complete guide to cannabis, which is a a nonprofit. I, I I would like to say that The Pot Book and the Ecstasy Book, called Ecstasy: The Complete Guide, those those two books are nonprofit books. All proceeds, every royalty check, funds clinical research, the, the ecstasy book um, funds clinical MDMA research and the pop book funds clinical cannabis research. But I, I knew nothing. I didn't even know the difference between Sativa and Indica when I started researching the pop book, it was pretty embarrassing. I just, but it was great to go in knowing nothing and just immerse myself and come out three years later and, and edit a book. I didn't write it alone. It's written by 50 of the world's experts on cannabis. And I just edited the book. Um, but what I learned about CBD was that it modifies the effects of THC primarily, um, but it also is in its own right uh, an, an, an agonist of the endocannabinoid system, which means it does it does sort of interact positively with the endocannabinoid system. And um, as much as THC might make somebody anxious or paranoid, um, CBD will make you less anxious and less paranoid. It still has got good anti-inflammatory effects. It has good anti-nausea effects. It doesn't make you particularly hungry. Um, but it it is going to sort of tickle the endocannabinoid system. It is going to act as an anti-inflammatory medicine. It does have the potential to kill cancer cells, probably not as well as THC does. Um, but it... You know, that I think that's sort of unclear yet which one's going to come out to be the winner. It would be nice if we could do a lot more political research in America. But so far, that research has been completely sort of stymied and roadblocked by our government. Um, And one of the nice things that Obama did was that he got rid of this ridiculous loophole that was making it impossible to do cannabis research um, he did make it easy as by executive order, he did something where he he eliminated what's called the PHS review. There was this whole kind of extra step. Like if you want to do research on heroin or LSD and these are Schedule One drugs, you have a Schedule One license, go ahead, FDA says the study's good, you're good to go. If you want to do research on cannabis, you have a schedule one license, FDA says you're good, you're still not good to go because you have to go through this extra step, which is a, a public health service review, and that's where things sort of die. <laughs> You don't, you know, FDA says it's fine. And then DEA, PHS says, well, we'll get back to you in a few years and let you know whether it's okay to do this study. And then they say no. Um, And NIDA has a a mandate to look at the harms of drug use, not to look at the benefits. So they, they don't have to say yes to any of this clinical research. So anyway, it would be nice if there were more clinical research comparing CBD, THC, a lot of people think that you really need to combine them. That as great as CBD is, and you know, people say that it's not psychoactive, but it, it is psychoactive. It actually can lower anxiety and lower paranoia. So that is psychoactive, but it doesn't get you high like THC does. It doesn't get you as altered as THC does. And it also can mitigate some of the effects of THC. So when you combine them, when you use the whole plant, And when you don't have a strain that is super high THC with no CBD, when you have some CBD there, um, you can, you can take more of it without getting so altered because, you know, a lot of people, uh, people want access to pain medicines or they want access to something that will help to bring their inflammation down. Not everybody wants to get high from using their medicine. You know, some people just really want it as a medicine. So it would be nice to have options. Um, but I I do think and a lot of people think that you that you need to put a little bit of THC in with these high CBD preparations in order for it to really work well, that there is something to be said for the entourage effect. And terpenes are an area where there's a lot of research going on, a lot of excitement because there's so many different terpenes. And what does this one do? What does that one do? Um, We need to do a lot more clinical research. We're falling way behind, you know, Israel and Spain and Brazil and Prague, I mean, there's all these places that are doing really interesting clinical cannabis research, but not America. And that shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't be lagging behind a bunch of other countries.
0: I've been doing my own uh, personal uh, pot research for 20 (laughs) 20 plus years now. And uh, I mean, it seems pretty egregious to me that like clinically we, you know, don't have better, you know, better um, information at this point. And it seems like we're still talking about the difference between CBD and THC as like a body high versus a, you know, a mental high or something like that. I mean, it's just, it's just absurd that we're still at this point.
1: I definitely bristle, you know, when people say like non-psychoactive, it's like, you know, I think if something makes you less anxious, you can't say it's not psychoactive, but it's funny how everybody is so worried about, about the altering effects. And I mean, look, I understand that for this, um, for this professor, You know, I get that she wants to be totally clear and, and, and sharp when she's teaching and when she's working, but it's not the worst thing in the world for somebody who's very sick and weak, um, and riddled with pain to, to feel sort of light and, uh, and smile and, you know, to have this sort of lightness of being, it's not the worst thing in the world to be altered. It's just, I, I think people should be able to have options.
0: Absolutely. Any uh, any tips from your pot book or from Moody Bitches about uh, mitigating the effects of the munchies?
1: Yeah, I have a very big tip. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's easier to say than do, but here's the bottom line with the endocannabinoid system: is that it is meant to get you to keep eating. Once you start eating, the endocannabinoid system is going to tell you this food tastes good. You should keep going, keep eating. It is not about initiating eating. So the trick. With cannabis and food, is just don't start. Do not put one thing in your mouth because it doesn't make you hungry. It makes you keep eating. So, what I recommend to my patients is that you eat before, like eat a good, healthy meal, whatever, before you have your cannabis if you don't want to have the munchies. And then just don't be around food. Don't put one single piece of food in your mouth because it doesn't make you hungry. It makes you keep eating. So, don't start. That's my big advice for the munchies.
2: It took me about fifteen years to figure that one out. <laughs> so. I mean, look,
1: it's still easier said than done because we're around food all the time, you know. Sure.
2: No, that's that. There's definitely something to be said for that. I think uh, that that's also uh, something you bring up in the book, but uh, for kind of food as a drug, um, and right. it's particularly for noticeable women, in this country. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Look, people soothe themselves orally. I mean, you know, from the time we're born, you know, somebody will stick a nipple in your mouth or stick a pacifier in your mouth to get you to shut up. And you you learn to soothe yourself orally. We're, we are soothed with food. I mean, you know, I'm Jewish. I certainly grew up with my mother offering me things to eat and sweet things. If I was bored, if I was sad, if I was angry, whatever, you know, there's food and, and you learn that food will comfort you and the food is sort of a reliable friend. And then there are all these issues around uh, women, you know, that we're supposed to be thin and have a flat belly or but we're also supposed to have boobs and a butt like a lot of conflicting messages. It's very hard for women to be happy with their bodies, Um, but then they end up hiding eating. And there's a lot of secretive eating and there's shame around eating. It's the same thing with drug use. You know, that because the drug, the drug use is illegal, we spend time hiding our drug use or having shame around our drug use. And that ends up making us more compulsive and turning us into junkies, basically. I mean, there's a lot of adrenaline around something that has to be hidden that you have shame around. It's going to end up being even more reinforcing. So women have a lot of issues around food, and a lot of people use food as a drug. Um, they don't use it as a fuel. So I, I there's a whole chapter on on food and moody bitches where I talk about about all that, and I talk about my own experiences growing up as a little chubby little chubby girl hiding food from her parents and from other people.
2: I I like the way uh, that that you tend to to explain things. You know, when you say something like food is a drug, it's not just. Uh, what you know, the, the eating and the feeling it's like you you always kind of go into w- what's happening in your in your brain when you're doing something like that, and it just reminded me so much of uh, of Jonathan Franzen's book, uh, The Corrections. Uh-huh. And, and there's just a, a great chapter where it, it uh, there's a, a character who is a sort of like a stockbroker, someone in finance, and it sort of uh introduces the character by giving this sort of like stock market reading of what's happening um, with his neurotransmitters and sort of his brain at the moment that you're introduced to him. And I thought I I kept thinking of that throughout your, throughout your book, because I'm like, if we just understood things more on that level in general, if everybody understood things more on that level, uh, we'd be a little bit more compassionate and, and a little bit nicer to everyone instead of just making harsh judgments on, on behaviors.
1: Well, I mean, a couple things. I I love that idea of this sort of like ticker tape, ongoing of like, okay, dopamine's up, serotonin's down. You know, yeah. first of all, I definitely talk about that a lot in moody bitches. I talk about like when you fall in love and your serotonin's low and your dopamine is high, as opposed to when you're on antidepressants, when it's the other way around. And that's one of the reasons that women on antidepressants have trouble mating and falling in love. Um, And I definitely talk about, uh, you know, sort of the dopamine pleasure reward system in terms of compulsive eating or compulsive drug use or compulsive gambling, anything like that. But, you know, a couple things. One thing is it's never as simple as anyone says it is. You know, it's it's never an issue of like serotonin is up and dopamine is down, even though I talk that way all the time in the book. Mm. The other thing is I read a great book recently by Maya Salovitz, who writes about addiction as a learning disorder really interesting perspective. And, you know, the bottom line with addiction is that because it is a learning disorder, it does not respond to negative reinforcement. It does not respond to punishment. Punishment does not work with addiction. Um, And this, this idea of having to bottom, you know, to reach bottom or to bottom out or, or tough love, any of that, it doesn't really work. That's not how people change their behavior. You know, nobody changes their behavior because you turned your back on them. Mm-hmm. They'll change their behavior because they're in a supportive environment and they're given the tools to learn how to slowly supplant the behavior they're doing now with something that's more healthy. And there's kind of a cross taper that has to happen where they they learn more healthy behaviors over time and then they can taper off the unhealthy behaviors. And you know the way that our sort of criminal justice system is set up, the way that our drug policy is set up. There's no accounting for the fact that it really is a learning disorder. Um, I I really recommend Maya Salovitz's book. It's called Unbroken Brain. I thought it was excellent. It really, you know, to give me a different perspective on drug use and drug policy is really saying something because I've been reading about this stuff since I was 12. So just a shout out to Maya. She's a great writer.
2: I, I think even um you know you say it's like when when someone says uh, or, or when you explain that serotonin's up and dopamine's down this doesn't uh, tell the whole story but I think it tells a part of the story that I've that that maybe people haven't heard before yeah and when you hear that it it uh it lessens their own judgment on their own behaviors and it might be right. the first step towards uh, changing a, a particularly undesirable behavior.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, something to keep in mind is that the you know, the our pleasure centers that that, you know, increase dopamine, quote, um, they're stimulated by all sorts of things. It's not just drugs that give you this dopamine surge. Food will do it. Sex will do it. Gambling will do it. Checking your email, being on Facebook. You know, there's I mean, the the, the sort of technology addiction is a very real phenomenon. And, you know, how many of you like you leave the house and you like check For a minute, a panicked minute, because you're not sure you have your phone on you. You know, if that's not like a little junkie withdrawal thing Mm -hmm. right there, I don't know what is, but I mean, there's a real panic that all of a sudden you don't have your phone, or maybe like, you know, you're losing, you don't have a signal or you're losing power. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, when I obviously, I mean, everyone's talking about this, it's not just me, but like everyone is addicted to their phones, period. I mean, Mm -hmm. everyone is just like, got their head down, looking at a screen. It's terrible. And everybody is in denial and nobody's really talking about it. We sort of jokingly talk about being addicted, but like you were really addicted. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I, I
2: feel like Bilbo, like fing, you know, running his finger over the ring, like when I'm, when I'm sitting around and I'm, I'm talking to somebody and I get disconnected from the conversation for a second, I just start, start touching, you know, my pocket just how oh, the phone's there. Is right there, there's right yeah it's not too far
0: away is there any kind of uh drug you can recommend for this uh addiction to our phones <laughs> right Bes- besides
1: besides the drug for like the the drug drug advertising disorder that we all <laughs> yes, have
0: exactly right um, we need a one-two punch yes yeah, we yeah. could
1: yeah you know we could we could all have some kind of like a you know, I don't know. I mean, look, they are talking about all sorts of like implants and long, long lasting injections for people who are addicted to opiates or to cocaine. I'm trying to think of the, of like the, it's like a vaccination basically. But I, I, those things worry me because you are, if you're going to interfere with the dopamine system and the reward system it's not going to be just that you get less of a reward from your drug of choice. You're going to get less of a reward from everything.
2: Sort of yeah, sort of treating the symptom and not the problem itself. You know, not, not, not going one, one step back. It's sort of always like tre- treating, uh, I don't know, treating, treating one specific problem instead of treating the, the problem that creates a series of problems.
1: Right. I mean, the truth is that we, what we really should be, it's like rat park, right? I mean, if you, if you, yeah. if you put a rat in a cage and all it has is a lever to push, it's going to push that lever. But if you also, you know, it's going to want the drugs because like, what else is it? It's in a cage. But if you, in that cage, if you've got a mate and a running wheel and some place to hang out, you know, the rat is not necessarily necessarily gonna self-administer the drug over and over. It's you know, you need an enriched environment so that you have healthier choices than to keep going after your drug of choice. So it's it really is sort of like a social issue um, more than anything, more than a pharmacological issue, I think.
2: Yeah, and and Julie, I wanted to say in Moody Bitches too, I love that you uh brought up, I think, (laughs) the the great addiction in this country that no one talks about, and that was pornography.
1: Right. Which really goes along with this technology. I mean, look, nobody's looking at, you know, Playboy magazines anymore. Right. I mean, all the porn is online. So um, and the problem, you know, the problem with porn, talk about new normal. Right. I mean, no one has any pubic hair anymore because of Internet. That's one new normal, which is like very unnatural and kind of crazy to me. I mean, it's obvious somebody who grew up in the 70s, which was very bushy, hairy. (laughs) I'm just like, what's going on now is, you know, it's it's a trend. It's a fad. It's taken hold. I mean, I, you know, it's funny. I I met with a friend of mine from med school who got divorced and started dating again. And he was just like, what the hell? I didn't get the memo, you know, like no one has pubic hair anymore. When did this happen? You know, it was a very quick, quick shift that happened. And it really was because of internet porn. So the, one of the problems with internet porn, besides the lack of uh, natural hair distribution um, that you, you end up cultivating a very specific trigger that gets you off. And, you know, the more porn you look at, the more you sort of refine your fetish and the thing that really arouses you. And that's fine, except that when you turn off your computer and turn toward your partner, they're not guaranteed to arouse you in the same way. And it may be harder uh, to get hard if you don't have that particular stimulus that you're that you've cultivated over years and years so i really i think that there are sort of risks um to internet porn
0: there's drugs for that too
1: (laughs) yes there (laughs) absolutely are talk about talk about blurring the line between recreational and therapeutic i mean viagra is an amazing example of that
0: yeah good point really good point so, Julie, as we wrap up here, um, I just wanted to end with a, a, a quick story. Um, so, I was, uh, we had Earth and Fire Airwood on the show uh, several mm-hmm. months ago. Yeah. Uh, and they reminded me that they uh, accept books as donations. So, I was cleaning up at home and I put together a few bags of, you know, a few dozen um, various psychedelic books that I had uh, been collecting over the years. And among them was Your uh, Ecstasy, The Complete Guide. And I thought this you know this could go to a better home, so it was I, it was right on top of the the stack of books, and it was right at the in the passenger seat of my car, ready to be boxed up and I got probably the most giddy text message from Kevin uh that I've ever received in the course of doing this show, and it was uh your message to him that you you were agreeing to be on the show and he was just so excited and and it was the the very same just the synchronistic moment where I parked the car glanced up my phone lit up and to the right of me was your book right on top of the stack of books I was donating to the Arrowids and uh so I of course I did not donate it I kept the book that's what I want to hear (laughs) (laughs) that was a sign
1: (laughs) that's what I want to hear yeah I should I should send them some moody bitches um I'm glad I'm glad you kept it it's you know people ask me every once in a while if I would uh you know do like republish it or do another edition or another version and I there to me, one of the few things that's really changed that we know, you know, that's changed about MDMA is that people are calling it Molly instead of Ecstasy. But there's not a lot that's come out new since that book has come out. So I I don't feel the need to to update it. But if anybody does, they're welcome to.
0: <laughs> well, aside from maybe the maybe the research, you know, maybe you want to include some something in the uh, you know an well, addendum not, or something like that.
1: Right. There's definitely nothing. There's no Midhofer data in there. That's for sure. I mean that because that book came out like. Two thousand one. Actually, you know what's interesting? Uh, The big publicity launch for the ecstasy book was nine ten, as opposed to nine eleven oh one. Wow! So, you know, the joke is I was I was hoping for a slow news week. Um, I didn't get to do a lot of publicity.
0: Wow. Well, I mean, your your book, you know, really like legitimized the whole concept for me. I just remember, you know, purchasing it when I had just first started to kind of experiment uh, with MDMA and start to get serious about, you know, psychedelic research. I was reading Arrowhead every day, and, and uh, then your book came along, and it just legitimized the topic for me. Like, it, it, you know, somebody wrote, like, an actual, like, you know, scholarly book about this? This is great. Um, so I have you to thank for that. Uh, so, yeah, thank you for, for writing that and for continuing to to write about, uh, you know, these important topics and for being so involved in this, uh, you know, industry, if you want to put it that way. Really appreciate it. Well.
1: It is a really great community, and I am very honored and happy to be a member.
2: Yeah, Julie, I wanted to uh, something you said before made me think of this uh, quote by Howard Zinn, who has always been my kind of favorite historian. And uh, it, it was uh, kind of in reference to what you were saying about uh, drug policy and just how difficult it feels sometimes to to kind of get things done on a on a higher level. And then you realize, sort of, when they do get done, it's because all these people sort of nameless people have been doing things in the background for such a long time and the change kind of comes from the bottom up and not the top down yeah and uh howard's i just pulled this quote up he said we don't have to engage in grand heroic actions to participate in the process of change small acts when multiplied by millions of people can transform the world and i think uh that's a very nice way to kind of talk about your contribution to this whole thing as, well as many other people's. But uh, it's just uh, kind of uh, a beautiful thing. And I'm, I think uh, we're living a very interesting moment in the whole uh, timeline.
1: We certainly are. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm happy, happy to be here, happy to be a part of it. Looking forward to seeing what happens next.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you again, Dr. Julie Holland, for being on this episode of Entheogen. And uh, where can listeners find you online?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. Moodybitches dot com, dot com, uh, thepotbook.com. What else Be- do I have? Bellevue Doc th- on Twitter. Uh Bellevue Doc on Twitter. Thank you very much. B E L L E V U E. Bellevue Doc on Twitter. Um if you know what I always tell people is like if you if you Google Julie Ecstasy, you'll find me.
0: <laughs> that's kind of <laughs> the easiest
1: way. <laughs> if I meet somebody at a party, I'm like, just Google Julie Ecstasy and you'll find me.
0: That's awesome. It's a great claim to fame. There's
1: a bunch of Julie Hollands, but there's only one Julie Ecstasy. <laughs> nice. <laughs>
0: well, well great. Dr. Julie Ecstasy, it's been great talking to you, and thank you again. Great to I'm have right. you on. Thank you for your time today.
2: My pleasure. Yeah, Julie, right. Thank, thank you so much. Alrighty, bye, you guys.
1: Hey, can you guys hear me?
0: Yeah, oh, that wow. sounds great. You sound really, really well. <laughs> it's like you're in the I room have with us. a
1: nice new microphone just for the occasion. Hold on. I'm putting in some uh, earplugs. Perfect. Okay. I can hear you. You can hear me.
0: Perfect. You are the best sounding guest we've ever had. I have to that's, say.
1: Well, you know, I'm very competitive, so that's what. I,
0: <laughs>
1: it's not enough that I sound good; it's that I sound the best.
0: You just won entheogen, just like that. <laughs> Congratulations!
1: Five <here's> <laughs> plaque. Bring me a trophy. <laughs>